This is a HeadGum Podcast. Craig, we're about to talk about a book that involves the hoarding of a lot of stuff. Yeah. Uh, but first, I want to talk to you about the hoarding of digital stuff. If you yeah. have a bunch of bits and bytes that you yeah. need to have up on the internet for some reason. And I do. You need to head over to Squarespace. Squarespace is a website that helps you make websites. They help you claim a domain, sell your stuff online, market a brand, and see analytics so you can gain powerful insights about your site visitors and how they interact with your content. Doesn't that sound fun? It sounds better than just keeping all this stuff to myself. <laughs> they help highlight all your stuff by giving you award-winning design, world-class engineering, beautiful templates, beautiful e-commerce tools. And they don't have anything to patch or upgrade ever. And 24-7 customer support in case you break something. Craig, if this sounds good to you, head over to squarespace.com slash overdue for a free trial. When you're ready to launch your website, use the offer code overdue to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Squarespace.com slash overdue. Use the offer code overdue. Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And I am not two years old. And you're, you're not, not two, two years, years old. old. No. But who I'm, is? Like, <laughs> my son is about to be two years old, which has been an exciting journey for all of us. <laughs> I have just, you know, um, okay, we're going to be talking about the book Heap House by Edward Carey this week. I read it. It's a Patreon recommendation. I'm excited. Um, but I'm also excited that your son is too, because I do love your son and I love you. Uh-huh. And it seems like Gross. maybe him being two does just goes it's a little wearisome. He's he. I don't know what word that is that you just said, yeah. <laughs> but but uh, yeah, a two year old sometimes they just do stuff because they're two, and it doesn't make any sense, and they start crying. Mm. And you try to take them out in the yard to play with them and to look at cars because they love to look at cars. And they just arch their back and lay down on the ground and they just cry. Yeah. And then 15 minutes later, they're fine. And that's what being two is, I guess. (laughs) The number of times in the last few months I've heard you go, I don't know, maybe it's just two. He's been two in my head for like three months. (laughs) That makes sense, though. There's like I a mean, lead you just, time. You've got to ramp up to two. You don't just become two. They don't just start being terrible on day one. <laughs> I'm sure there's a warm up and a cool down. <laughs> oh, boy. Like, hmm. I've also, I mean, three major is also a thing, which is a thing. I, I, it's less iconic than terrible twos, but it's, apparently you're not out of the woods just because they stop being two. It's, yeah. Uh, it's from only. talking to the parents that I know, it just seems like there's a cool catch name, like code name or catchphrase for the attitude that a kid has every year. And it's just called being a kid and they have an attitude. Just being, they just have an attitude. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but I've got. But he can attitude. say most of the letters in the alphabet, which is relevant to our podcast oh. because we read mm. books that use those letters. And yeah. every week, one of us just uses our knowledge of the letters to read a book <laughs> that we've never read before, and we tell <laughs> you about it. And that's what we're here to do with Heap House. Heap House. 
He pows. By Edward Carey. This is a Patreon record. Somebody stop me. I'm Edward Carey. Smoking. Oh my God. <laughs> That's what you're doing. <laughs> oh, I wasn't prepared. Um, mm-hmm. This is a recommendation. That's the from, same guy, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, recommendation from Sam. Thank you, Sam. Uh, did not provide us with much information on Heap House, but did have some nice things to say about us. So I'm going to read it to put me in a good mood. Oh, I just good. wanted to say that I started listening to your podcast on a whim of boredom and wound up really loving it. Uh, it strikes the right balance between irreverent, and poignant, humorous, and thoughtful commentary. I want to throw a couple of books on your recommendation pile. One would be good for Spooktober, which unfortunately has passed. Uh, Heap House. Um, and then the other was Golden Compass, which we did tackle on some other episodes. So go check those out. I hate to tell you because I, I, the reminder of linear time is a thorn in my side constantly, but uh, Spooktober is right around the corner, my friend. Oh, no. <laughs> like we're past it, but it's also coming up. Oh, you're right. We just had some planning meetings for August and September. Who's the one who's two now? It's me. Anyway, <laughs> it's you. <laughs> um, we're going to talk about the author for a little bit. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'm going to tell Andrew and our listeners a little bit about this book I read. Andrew, what do we know about... Now, you know, I know your goops. Mm-hmm. You're going to tell me about the movie Dumb and Dumber. You're going to tell me about the movie Man on the Moon. No, I already did all my Jim Carrey goofs. It's okay. just those two. Okay, um, what do we need to know about that, But now I Edward. want you to imagine that for the rest of the podcast that I'm talking out of my butt. <laughs> to <laughs> into my microphone <laughs> okay. in honor of James Carey. Uh, Edward Carey, no relation, was born in 1970. He's an English novelist, playwright, and illustrator. Uh, he earned his drama degree from the University of Hull in 1991 yep. and was yet another attendee and later a teacher at the illustrious Iowa Writers Workshop. Mm-hmm. So p- put it up on the big board, another Iowa guy. Put it on the board. Uh, I think he also has taught at uh austin university of Texas. so at, yep. as of 2006 he lives in austin texas uh where he does teach uh, and he is married to elizabeth mccracken who is another iowa writers workshop grad who has also written uh, novels and short stories um uh, here's a line from his website just talking about his family a little bit like his father and grandfather both officers in the royal navy he attended Pangburn Nautical College, where the closest he came to following his family calling was playing Captain Andy in the school's production of Showboat. I dig so it. So not a, not a, not a Navy man, Edward I, Carey. I did see uh, an interview with him um, where he mentioned that Heap House and its Victorian architecture and things uh, were sort of... He was probably drawing on his experience at that boarding school a little bit. I think his brother even called him out and was like, yeah, you named the cooks the same names as the cooks at our boarding school, dude. Oops. <laughs> Oops. Uh, so, yeah, that, that was in response to a question that was like, hey, this is a book about a pretty, like, dark childhood that these characters have. What was yours? He's like, mine was fine. But- I had a good, ch- I had a fine <laughs> childhood. I just, I just was in this big weird house yep. and that's what the Heap House house came from. Uh, Heap House in 20, was published in 2014 as book one of the Ironmonger trilogy, yep. which is followed up with Falsham, Fal- Falsham, probably and Falsham Lung- and Lungden mm-hmm. in 2014 and 2015 respectively all these books are sort of young adult books so he, he has things to say about that that we can talk about uh but they've been described as a dickens cross with lemony snicket um i also 
found this quote in an NPR review of Heap House. Uh, reading Heap House, I was reminded of Edward Gorey, Lemony Snicket, and Roald Dahl. It's a grimy world with a sepia glow, a Victoriana of malicious clutter. It walks an acrobatic line between charm and startling, shocking, visceral critiques of late capitalism that made me want to stand up and shout my agreement. It's an intelligent, thoughtful, compassionate book, unflinching in its depictions of casual cruelty and systematic exploitation. So it's one of those kids' books that you read as a kid and you enjoy it. And then maybe, as with some Roald Dahl stuff, you read it as an adult and are like, man, that is really kind of yeah. messed up. Yeah, I I would agree with that assessment. And this was his first foray into kids' fiction. Uh, mm-hmm. Observatory Mansions in 2000 and Alva and Irva in 2003 I don't think we're aimed at kids. Um, Though he does say of these being YA books, and we can we can talk about his yeah. you know his transition from adult to to younger fiction uh, as we go. But he says in this LA Times interview, I find it frustrating sometimes that everything needs to be pigeonholed. I hope that Heap House is as much for adults as for kids. Some of the writers I really love, Neil Gaiman, Robert Louis Stevenson, Poe, are read by all ages, but with a children's book, one of the things you absolutely have to have is a plot that moves. Yeah. He's in, so I there guess were that mo- being the, the main thing. You can't just like mess around for pages and pages with little indulgences and like this all the David Foster Wallace stuff. <laughs> all know. the Iro Writers Workshop stuff. <laughs> yeah, where you're just like, I don't know if this is gonna come back and matter later, because if not, I'm gonna check out. <laughs> yeah, he I think there's a multiple interviews he cites at least one character from this book that he that he just axed because an editor was like, Cool story, bro, get it out of here. <laughs> you could just take him out of here and just like publish it on your blog spot. Yeah. Um nobody I, he, said that to him. That's what I'm saying to him. <laughs> uh he also said this was the first time he'd ever written a story set in England um as an English author. I mean even though it's not like really England, right? It's like magic fancy England. It's it's not fancy. It takes place for in like, garbage, but for like magic depressed kid goth England. Yeah, it's kid goth England. <laughs> Um, for sure, but it, yeah, um, he also, uh, he got the inspiration for this book, um, from what he says, a museum outside Beijing. Uh, we'll talk about the whole like theme of objects and stuff. Uh, but he says there, they had different objects from different centuries sorted and roughly positioned into different rooms. In one room, there were nothing but bathtubs. Baths from so many different time periods all stacked together. They seemed to be communicating with each other, talking, whispering. It was as if the baths had all decided to congregate together themselves and so had moved into this one large room to create a bath commune. And you get to- Toy Story, but for baths. Sort, I guess. sort of, but but the sense of like, and I've I remember I went to a wedding in Chicago once that was in one of those like reclaimed furniture warehouses, right? Where there's like church pews and weird foosball tables and yes. old beer mm-hmm. signs. Uh-huh. And there was a room upstairs that just had 200 doors in it. It was uh-huh. like Monsters, Inc. <laughs> and there's there's a power in a lot of instances of the same thing and also it all being like it it coming from somewhere and not being like right off the like factory line or something. Sure. Um, okay. A lot of this book is about people's garbage, or at least people's discarded things. Yeah. Um, 
Well, that's really all I have about Edward Carey. As with so many contemporary authors, all you have is like sort of interviews that he's done and like the blurb that's on his author website. Though as author websites go, his is, his is pretty good. It's pretty fun. I want to talk about it specifically with this book and the the other two novels of his that if folks uh, maybe haven't heard of him from this are Little and The Swallowed Man. Uh, there were a couple interviews around Little, I think, in particular that I saw floating around while I was Googling for this one. And he was a Guggenheim fellow in 2019. But um, all right, somebody stop me. We got to take a break. I won't stop you. Let's go. <laughs> Andrew, help me get this ad started. <laughs> okay, Craig, can you tell me about our other sponsors this week? Oh, man, thank you for your help. <laughs> Overdue was brought to you in part this week by our sponsor, BetterHelp which makes professional counseling accessible, affordable, and convenient. So anyone who struggles with life's challenges can get help anytime, anywhere. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating with them in a safe, private, online environment in under 48 hours, and you can send a message to your counselor anytime. It is available for clients worldwide, and licensed professional counselors have a broad range of expertise. Uh, I know it's like sometimes a video chat or a phone call, and you could kind of usually set a schedule that works for you, uh, in my experience. So as a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash overdue. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, better com slash overdue. Craig, that was a real good ad read. Thank you. But if I wanted to listen to a podcast that was just like, my other friends tell me about their lives or something. Would there be like a service that I could use to to help them record that? I guess it's my very convoluted and complicated question. It, this is, is, has this ever happened to you? It's so funny that you ask because I know exactly of the service that would help you. It's called oh, Artifact. That's cool. Good. Good. I'm great. I'm glad. It's a podcast making service for people who like podcasts and want to use them to make memories and to give gifts. Um, you might have people you want in your life that you want like a cool interview with or you want to record their life story, but like they don't know how to make a podcast and you have you do not have time to teach them how to do it. So Artifact will do that for you. They capture your personal stories as a one-of-a-kind podcast that you can share with your loved ones and keep for future generations to hear. You can hear your parents' story of falling in love. You can hear your grandpa's story of sailing the seven seas. You could... <sighs> I guess you could probably interview a dog or like someone pretend like speaking for your. You could probably get real goofy with it. You could hear about how your parents fell in love and realize that you time traveled back to make sure that they got together so you would be born, for instance. Uh oh. That would be a fun way to do what if, it. What? <laughs> oh my God. Uh, <laughs> Artifact will connect the people in your life with professional interviewers, edit those conversations into private radio quality episodes that sound like the real thing. We are in the progress of making an artifact. We have a really cool idea. Um, and it's, I don't want to jinx it by saying it out loud, but we're in contact with some people that it's been really fun to think of giving it as a gift, I want mm -hmm. to say. Sure. To like the type of conversation that we might get to record 
that then I'm thinking specifically of people that I hope will listen and like cry, like like cry in a good way because they're so happy to get this gift. Yes, make your friends cry with <laughs> with a, in a good with way with a, a surgical precision with an artifact podcast. And it's really easy to do. All you need to do is go to heyartifact.com, uh, hey select the type of interview you want, book it on the website, and record it. It's thirty minutes over the phone, and they edit it down to twenty for an episode. Artifact is your shortcut to creating something that you'll want to keep coming back to year after year. And you don't have to take my word for it. It's on the list of the best gifts for families on the wire cutter. If you use the code overdue, you'll save $40 on your first purchase. Get started at heyartifact.com. Okay. So, Andrew, you looked at Mr. Carey's website. I did. I want you to tell me a little bit about the art on his website. I have also sent you a link directly to a map or something that he drew of Heap House for his website. It's got a bunch of creepy like <laughs> ventriloquist dummies on it is what it looks like. Sure. It's not. I guess it is Edward Gorey-ish. Yeah. I always want to. Yeah. It's, it's just very like all these people have a depression. They have an issue or seven is really... Mm-hmm the vibe mm-hmm. um, sad sad dandies i would describe <laughs> sad victorian dandies um and i'll just there are, uh, he said in a couple different places that the whole trilogy started with his drawing of the main character claude who i don't think he knew that his name was claude Ironmonger when he started um he said i was doodling away and i drew this really unhappy looking ill-faced child with a parting and uh, and pink circles under his eyes in an ill-fitting dinner jacket, and I wondered, well, who are you? <laughs> Seems like a did good he, way. Did he figure it out to start? Figure out who he was. A book. Um, yeah. So this, the titular heap house, Andrew, mm-hmm. is a tell me about this house. Big old messy house in the mm-hmm. late 1800s in, as we said earlier, dirty kid goth London. And it is, like, compiled from a bunch of different houses. There's that, what was that, like, the Winchester house that was, like, built by that lady, like, in a bunch of I, weird ways? Yes, yeah, yes. yeah, 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 she, because she's the gun heiress. Yes, yes, and it was, like, yeah, haunted, and, she, and then... And she built that wacky shack, yeah. <laughs> it was a wacky shack, you're right. <laughs> um, it, this is... Sim- it's similar in the sense that it is eccentric and does not adhere to a, a like a traditional or rational ground plan. Um, the Ironmonger family, who has existed in this part of London referred to as filching in the novel, mm-hmm. um, has been like amassing parts of other buildings and just kind of like bolting it on as they go. And so I don't know if you're able to look up the sketch of this house. I, I sent you a link in our in our Slack. Oh, did you use that? All right. Um, I'll go check it out. Here and I go. just get a get a look at the cross section of this thing that's got like multiple sp- <laughs> I just watched you see it. <laughs> no, it is that it's like that weird sight gag in cartoons where you're in you're like you're in the Simpsons living room and then you go like underground and you see a bunch of like funny like but like a bone like a dinosaur chasing a guy but it's bones and yeah the, like it's it's a funny sight gag it's yes. like that except boy it's a big house it's a big old house like there's a elevator that come that helps you 
get a train in the basement and the elevators controlled by dogs and a hamster wheel. Yeah, the dogs and the hamster wheel. And that's What's that deal. All the ser- a train down there. All the servants live underground. Um, and then I mean, you get far enough down here, it just becomes dead cells. It is. It looks a lot like a like what if a ever gory Metroid game. <laughs> it's, pretty, <laughs> it's pretty fun. Um, this is on the Edward Carey Author website. You can take a look, and it has a bunch of like interactive little click things where you can find different characters and stuff. Interactive click things. I, I what would you call them? them? Web designer? It's like hyperlinks. <laughs> Maybe I don't know. They're buttons. You here click on the on. here on the World Wide Web. Here on the World Wide Web, um, and it's in this remote part of like outside London where there's a bunch of trash around them. As we hear in the book, over a hundred years ago, the heap was smaller, purchased and bought, brought to filching than the ironmonger who started it got into gin and let the heaps grow without the sifting. And now they're ahead of the humans the original like ironmonger patriarch bought up a bunch of land and started making money by like paying to take garbage away from parts of london that didn't want garbage Mm -hmm. and then they were supposed to be paying people to like sift the garbage and deal with it and like organize the refuse and for a few decades that didn't happen so the heaps got really really big (laughs) And this is how I'm sure that actual garbage collection works, by the way. Like, I, I mean, in Philadelphia, I know for a fact that all my carefully rinsed and sorted recycling gets thrown in with the trash, like, it's very bad. a good quarter of the time, which is awesome. Yeah, it's very bad. And, and I know the economics of recycling are pretty screwed up in a lot of ways. There is, you could, there is a deep read on this book about our relationship to trash and what we get rid of and what we throw away um and so you could then make the next step into like let's talk about whether or not we fund our sanitation systems correctly this book isn't quite at the level of let's deal with municipal government is mostly about kooky victorian families yeah because that feels a little boring for a kid's book is municipal government (laughs) yeah no, I mean, no shade to those of you who are in municipal. No, government, no. It's, just, it's a hard subject to make accessible for children. And it's not priority one of this book, for sure. Um, there are upstairs ironmongers who are like members of the family. They're like blood relations to this family. Vin, like Vin Diesel. Yeah. Mm-hmm, the family. And they mm-hmm. are there are downstairs ironmongers who are like servants they're orphans from the nearby bur- like okay filching is the pet name for forling forlichingham which is like the real name in the book but everybody calls it <laughs> filching and if you're an orphan or your family's poor or something you might get quote unquote married to the heaps instead of going off and having a family and a career and that means that you just work in the trash wastelands for the rest of I your mean, life. Yeah, I assume that's married to the sea, except for trash. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's mm-hmm. married mm-hmm. to the heaps. Yeah. Um, and some of them, if they are somewhat related to this big ironmonger family, um, you might get to go work in the house as kind of a, like, um, you know, upstairs, downstairs, servant living in the basement sort of thing. And like we alluded to earlier with Edward Carey's art... Um, everybody wears kind of sad Victorian clothes. And 
you know, everyone's in their goofy, sad formal wear uh-huh. all the time. Um, we we learn a lot of this through the eyes of our protagonist, Claude Ironmonger, who is a 15-year-old about to turn 16. Can you spell Claude for me, just so we're on the same page? C-L-O-D. Okay, so not like Claude Monet. No. But like a clod of dirt. That's a yeah, so that's a running theme throughout the book. All of the Ironmongers have names that are like a little slanted. Um there's a cousin Thomas instead of Thomas. There's Morcus instead of Marcus. Love Morcus. Morcus is my boy. Uncle Oliver and Aunt Rosa Mud, which is Rosa Mud is pretty good. <laughs> And got her. If if you were like recommending this book to a young reader or trying to figure out like why a young reader might be interested, that is like a number one why I think it works. There's a lot in the names. There's like inherent wordplay that is going to be memorable to a kid who's developing. You know, if they're a reader and they're developing a rich vocabulary or at least interested in words this is going to be fun for them because it's like all of the Ironmonger names are like, they're not all, it's not poop jokes, but it is like, isn't it funny that it sounds like a real name, but it's not. Like yeah. That is, right. and, and we, yeah, the, uh, the seven year old who we're, we are acquainted with our friend. Catherine's yes. Daughter is, yes. Is very into the, like, I, I remember when in her life she began to be interested in wordplay and that, yeah, that there's a lot of mileage there. Yes, definitely. Um, and the big thing about the Ironmongers is that when you are born, mm-hmm. you are given a birth object. Okay. You like can, a binky? Well, you can sort of think about it like a, um, what's the thing from the Golden Compass? What is What are those things called? Is that the, the Golden Compass? No. <laughs> the daemons. Yes. Okay. Uh-huh. You, you get this object uh, for the last few generations, or I guess this generation, um, the grandma, the matri- the grand matriarch of the Ironmonger family has been doling out these things. And it can be something like what Claude has, which is a bathtub plug. Uh-huh. And he wears it on a little fob chain. Well, this, I mean, he, it's useful to have. I mean, how many hotel rooms have you been in where the drain's been broken or mm-hmm. there hasn't been one? Mm-hmm. You yeah. might have what we meet later. Penelope has a doily. Or you, okay, yeah, you don't want to leave a ring on the coffee table. That's good. It's good to have. Um, yeah. Well, let me just read. You're gonna you're gonna get a couple examples if I read this. Uh, as Claude is Please, wondering yes. over, there's some implications of like a nature versus nurture thing here, where like, do people become like their birth objects? Or do their birth objects fit their personalities, like, magically? Sure. I did wonder over our birth objects. Should Aunt Lusa ever have taken up smoking had she never been given an ashtray? She began her habit at seven years of age. Should Uncle Oliver ever have been a doctor if he was not presented with that pair of curved forceps designed for child delivery? And then, of course, there was my poor melancholy Uncle Patrick, who was given a rope tied into a noose at birth. How miserable it was to see him mournfully limp through the unsteady corridors of his days. And then there's like, should Aunt Urgula have been taller if she hadn't been given a footstool? Or 
the grandmother that you meet later has never left her room because she was given a giant marble mantelpiece. <laughs> well, I mean, what you need to get her is to take it to the chocolate factory and then her legs will magically heal themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All these old people just getting a free ride this for 20 years, pretending like they can't walk. So really, uh, given sufficient financial incentive, oh, look at look at Grandpa Joey's up and about again. (laughs) That's a real beef you have, huh? It's just seems I mean, Charlie's parents struggle so much and to have all these freeloading old people Mm. (laughs) laying in the bed. It's really unfortunate. (laughs) Completely capable of helping out and refusing to until plied with money and chocolate. (laughs) Just it just makes me upset. Is okay, all. okay. Um, I hope you can sympathize with our boy Claude in the way that you can sympathize with Charlie. Claude, he is a runt, a bit. He's like kind of a he's kind of a weirdo. So like, okay, he, <laughs> those are two different things that you've just described. Well, he's like he's a grandson of the patriarch of this family, and so there are easily dozens, if not more ironmongers in this family it's kind of unclear how many there are just a bunch so there's a lot of like people marrying cousins like people people are all distant relations of each other in this house also no one ever leaves no one's allowed to leave (laughs) because this house is huge and beyond the house is kind of like the sands from beetlejuice but it's just garbage you know how they're not allowed to leave the house and yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I get it. There's no sandworms, though. It's just garbage. Just garbage. There might be other stuff. There's no sandworms. And Claude, uh, the reason he's really different is that he can he can hear the objects that everyone has talk, but they don't say. All they do is say their name, like Pokemon. Yeah, like. <laughs> The forceps that his doctor uncle has just says per- Percy Hotchkiss. Percy Hotchkiss all is that the time. The forceps' his name? Yeah. Uh, the rope a, that Uncle Patrick okay. has is called Lieutenant Simpson. Okay. Uh, Claude's bathtub plug, I believe, is named James Henry Hayward. So is this just like funny, like a. Uh funny thing to hear these objects say or is this like a name of of whoever it was who owned the things before they were cast off or this is a central mystery of the novel andrew glad okay. that you keyed right. into it yeah. um when I'm here when claude was a that's andrew i'm here when claude was a baby he like he could hear it before he understood what was happening so like he never slept well as a baby he had a hard time when he was little and now this is a thing that like separates him from other people because most people don't believe that he can do this. His uncle Oliver is the only one who's like had conversations where he's like, okay, well, what did the forceps say? And he's like, it says Percy, Ho- Percy Hotchkiss. And he's like, that's it? He's like, that's what it says. <laughs> I mean, the forceps are talking. What else do you want? It seems pretty cool to me. I don't know why I need to have this whole other thing that they do for you to acknowledge that it's cool. Yes. And and it creates some interesting moments throughout the book and has created them throughout his life where like people keep their birth objects with them. Uh, for reasons explained later, it is bad to not have your birth object with you at sure. all times. 
And I mean, do you die or is it just unlucky or what's the well, so the, the inciting instant of this book is that Aunt Rosamud has lost her brass doorknob. And she, oh, Aunt Rosamud. She doesn't scamp. She doesn't know where it is. It's causing her psychological and physical distress, and her state deteriorates over the first half of the book because she doesn't she is separated from her brass doorknob. Claude can remember a time when one of his uncles lost his safety pin, and Claude found it because he could hear the safety pin talking, and he uh-huh. found it. And so, like, one or two of the adults is like, well, we got to keep this Claude kid around, even though everybody thinks he sucks. Uh, because he, if this happens again, we're going to need him. But, of course, he's never heard the brass doorknob talk for some reason or another. That's never really explained. But it is <laughs> plot use until the brass doorknob does talk when it is found. Um, and he does hear it speak for the first time. Anywho. Um I mentioned his cousin Thomas. Thomas is also kind of a real Ron Weasley. He's a real nerd. He's just um, bad. He's just, well, he gets picked on a lot. And he really loves animals. There's just animals running around in this building all the time. <laughs> Birds and rats and bats and things. And Thomas is one of the only people who likes them. And whenever he collects too many of them, it uh, becomes a nuisance and people come in and scatter his whole collection and then like sometimes kind of off some of the animals to teach him a lesson and it never works. Um, Thomas is... Sounds fun. Sounds like a blast. Thomas is over 16 and he has yet to be trousered. Trousered is when you... Does that book- mean like that someone comes up behind you and pulls your pants off? The opposite is when wow. for the first time in your life you're allowed to wear pants, not shorts. Because that's okay. when you become a man, quote unquote... I guess that's the English thing, right? Is it? I don't know. <laughs> they just seem like the kind of people who would tie social status to pant length. <laughs> it's sort of, you know, like a young boy in his pantaloons or his culottes or something. I don't know how it works. <laughs> um, and Claude is also coming up on his trousering also. But Thomas is like kind of weird because he should have been trousered by now. But because he's a little marches to his own drum a little bit. Makes me wonder, makes me think about my own trousering. Every, every boy remembers the, the first day. time they had a pair of trousers. That they were trousered. I'm trying to remember the first time I picked out a pair of pants to be mine, and I don't really know when that was. I don't remember either. Yeah. Because he goes, he goes a pretty long ways usually for a lot of folks. Well, it where... all gets sucked up into that weird, like, teen phase where you're really uncomfortable with your body yep. and you don't know what's going on. Oh, and you just have a no teen phase? style, but you just have to, like, cover stuff up. Yes. It's yes. a whole thing. It yeah. is a whole thing. Um, I don't envy anybody going through it, and I didn't enjoy going through it myself. Um, anyway, as I said, the big... The big what's going to happen in this book starts with uh, Claude and this missing brass knob. The other main plot, our other protagonist, is uh, Lucy Pennant. Uh, She says her name a lot in the book, so I wanted to get it right. Also like a Pokemon. Also like a Pokemon. Well, she introduces herself a lot to the reader, like because both of these, all this section is uh, first-person narration. And she says a variation on this phrase a lot. I have thick red hair and a round face and a nose that points upwards. My eyes are green with flecks in them, but that's not the only place I'm dotted. There's punctuation all over me. I'm freckled and spotted and mold and have one or two corns on my feet. My teeth are not quite right, uh, white. 
my one tooth is crooked. I'm being honest. I shall tell everything how it occurred and not tell lies, but stay with the actual always. I shall do my best. One of my nostrils is slightly bigger than the other. I chew my fingernails. Sometimes the bugs do bite, and then I scratch them. My name is Lucy Pennant. This is my story. That's the first <laughs> paragraph of Lucy's narration. I I was in love with Lucy for the rest of the book. Okay. Uh, she grows up in an orphanage in Filching, outside of Heap House. Her parents got some weird heap fever disease. Where I mean, it seems like if you live by a pile of trash, it's see, yeah, you'll probably you're probably gonna catch something off that every now and again. So this started with objects where objects would start to not work right, uh, as she explains it. It's very timey wimey, um, or a little like I don't know. It lacks a concrete literal explanation. Like he's not attempting to make it make sense, um, but he says. Uh, like things that are solid would turn slippery. Uh, you couldn't get them to do what you wanted them to do. It so- sort of sounds like when a computer doesn't do what you want it to do, and it just starts. Man, <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's things that we've bring, been living with right now. Bring this into my wheelhouse. I can't can't even deal with this right now. But imagine if you're working on a computer and it kind of like starts bugging out, and then you start bugging out. Yeah, it's it's really a lot. It takes a lot of effort for me to imagine that hypothetical situation. (laughs) I know it's never happened to you. Um, But in this book, it's a disease that spreads from, you know, forks to people. And then (laughs) uh, they really worry about that in public health, like that, that big like silver, silverware to people jump. I will say like Like you remember a few few summers ago with the spoon flu and they were Stop really it. they thought it might they thought it might jump to people but it never it never did it doesn't just, just, just a bunch of spoons died if you can imagine like you're listening to us goof right now and you can imagine what it is to read a few paragraphs of this uh of this little girl and what happens to her parents is they stop move they just stop like the verb the most explicit ex- description you get of what happened to them is that they kind of go like spiritually hollow inside and then they just stop Same. and then by the time that she sees them again uh, a bunch of like the scientists from ET but i guess Victorian England style like run in and like spray the place down and send her off to an orphanage and she never sees her parents again and it's kind of scary for what f- to read this like trash disease of take her parents from her you know and she doesn't know what's happened and then while she's at the orphanage some dude shows up she's been fighting with this other redhead girl who's like there's only one redhead girl in the orphanage that's all that's allowed and she's like come on now i'm lucy pennant deal with it and then an ironmonger shows up and is selects lucy and is like hey you have some ironmonger blood in your ancestry Come with us. You're going to be a servant in the Ironmonger house. And she's like, I don't have to go work in the dirt. She's like, and he's like, nah, you can come live in the house. And she's like, that sounds good to me. I'm Lucy Pennant. Uh, (laughs) And she goes through this like pretty intense. Roald Dahl is a good comparison. The kind of like traumatic kid unfamiliar with a situation having to like be forcibly either indoctrinated or exposed to things that they don't understand where like all of a sudden she has this stop me if you've ever heard of like a a real taskmaster master of a head uh 
like maid and like mm-hmm. a stern, quiet butler who's very formal. Yeah, no, th- yeah. yeah. This, these aren't tropes that I, I've heard I think, of before. Yeah, I think he deploys the tropes pretty well. But like, y- as an adult reader, I encountered them and was like, "Oh, I've seen, I've met these folks before." Um, and they give her a, an injection of something that she doesn't understand or want or is confused by, and then they give her a, bo- a box of matches, and they're like, "You're an ironmonger now, so here's your birth object. It's a box of matches." But because you're a servant, we're going to lock it in a cabinet and you're not going to get to hang out with it. But it is yours and you will care about it. And she's like, that's not, that doesn't make any sense. I didn't even know that this was a thing. Um, so then we move into a phase of the book where Claude and Lucy are like moving through parts of their lives. Claude is going to get married to... Pen, Penelope? It's, a, it's like a... Penelope. Yeah, right? but not... Because the way the book works. Yeah. Right. It's like the trash version of Penelope. Yes. Yes. Name wise. <laughs> Correct. And she is also that girl's trash. She treats him like trash. <laughs> and she only treats him nicely at the end of the book when he has a little bit of authority and seems important and can protect her. And it's very clear that he just does not respect her at all, as he shouldn't. Um, and Lucy, who is like. They tell her that she's not allowed to have her name anymore. Her name is just Ironmonger now because she's a lowly servant and she is going to fight to protect her identity and remember her past. And also there's a girl who she met and liked, also a servant who has lost her identity and she's going to like try to find that girl's name and like get it back to her. That's Lucy's quest. Um, the book takes a big turn, Andrew... You know, lied over a whole bunch of stuff. I'd really, you know, I had fun with most of this book. So I can pretty easily just say like, hey, if this sounds kind of fun, like go read it. But like the um, there's literally a section that is has a subhead within a chapter that goes things are not what they seem, which seems like a good <laughs> part of any book. So you you kind of tapped into a little bit of like what's going on with the birth objects and I want you to like just kind of spin out some of your theories. What do you think is? I told you that they people can't be separated from them. I told you that what's his name hears their names all the time. Like, what do you think is going on? I mean, yeah, I think of the theories that I pitched. I, I think I like the the names they're saying are the names of the people who owned them before they ended up in the heap. Mm. And the, I don't know, the, the attachment to the the people who live in the heap house, I'm, I'm less sure about. I don't know if like that item getting thrown in the heap like coincides with that person's birth or like if you just reach a random object off the pile and you hand it to them and then they build up the attachment to it themselves. Like, I don't know, like that's how... A lovey works for a kid, right? Yes. Like they just kind of just kind of pick a thing, mm-hmm. and they don't remember ever not having it. Mm-hmm. And the parent can assign it sometimes in a way, though it didn't work with Henry. Of course, the thing that we bought three <laughs> of that we intended to be his lovey did not end up being his lovey. His lovey ended up being a puppy toy that I think Susanna has tracked down a second copy of, but I'm not sure yet. Because the last one she bought was, it was the same puppy, but it was like twice as big. Mm. So it's, you know, we're still 
flying without a safety net over here. Yes. Well, I hope that Henry is this going to you think this is going to be it? He's not going to choose something else? No, I th- I think he's bonded. The, I think puppy is the lovey. Okay. Well, I hope that the puppy is not uh, the way the objects work in this book, Andrew, because mm-hmm. it's not the names of the people that used to have the objects. It's the names of the people that the objects used to be. Oh, what? No, no, no. You get reincarnated as no trash. You get the trash disease and then you, turn, you turn into it- trash. Wait, so the trash disease makes the objects not work right, but the trash disease also makes people turn into objects? Yeah, man. That doesn't... But then do they still have the trash disease? Yeah, but there's a way to prevent you from passing the disease or getting the disease, and it's to have an objectified person in your possession. Oh, boy. And to have some of it in your blood like so if your th- object was like a uh you know a skillet like you'd scrape a little of the metal off and you you'd get it injected in you and then i guess they'd rub some of your hair into the skillet so now you're bonded and then if you get separated you might get object disease so it's a vaccine but it's like you have to carry it around with yourself all the time. yes and and because all these objects used to be people they sort of have a will to become people again or to at least affect the world again do any of them successfully do that yeah but it gets the the okay. book really takes a turn after aunt rosamud who has been separated from her brass knob for a period of time um Claude and Lucy have had some adventures. They've gotten to know each other. Uh, He's going to help her find the girl that she's looking for and help her find her name. But he's also going to try and solve this brass knob thing, which is like Lucy found the brass knob. He goes to visit his sick aunt and she's not in the bed. Andrew, there's a bucket in the bed. (laughs) And sitting just like Charlie Bucket's grandparents, huh? It comes full circle, (laughs) doesn't it? On the chair where he placed the brass knob is a little girl with the same name that the brass knob had started yelling. And then we get a cool like info dump scene with the grandpa who has been absent for most of the book. He's the only one who's allowed to leave the house. He leaves it on the cool basement train. He goes to London every day. We don't really know what he does there. We find out later he's like dealing with heap disease out in London. <laughs> um, and he gives Claude this big info dump on the way that the object fever works and he is enlisting Claude into using his listening power to like help them know where the objects are and talk to them and he has to kind of because Claude is a good boy and his immediate reaction to hearing that his bathtub plug used to be a person named James Hayward James Henry Hayward is like well how do I make him a person again he's a person he shouldn't be a bath plug Uh uh-huh and that is just not what the ironmonger way. So he's going to have but is to. That, but is that like his the the quest that becomes that well that is on that's okay. his personal opinion of what should happen. And so as he and Lucy kind of buck the ways of the house, Lucy ends up getting banished to the heaps for some infractions. Um, and the big last part of the book, there's this big storm. 
the objects have started coalescing into like golems. They're called gatherings. There's like, oh, no. there's like, okay, I'm going to read you a description. The long thin man wasn't a person. He wasn't a person at all. He, it was a collection of things. It was made of metal, of pipes and springs, of gears and pistons, a mechanical being consisting of so many things brought together with some sort of engine inside it. Its top hat was a long pipe with a lid and a little steam was coming out of it. There was many small objects attached to its larger metal pipes like barnacles upon a ship's hull. There was a corkscrew, a clay pipe. There was a magnifying glass. There was a ball of string, an apron, a great hook hanging down from its hat, swinging before the face like a monitor. I could quite certainly see what its face was now. It had no re- real face. It was a polished brass plate. And I think its belly is like a, a bathtub or something. It's just... My garbage has unionized. Yes. Help me. Uh-huh. And so this is kind of... This, these these things represent a sort of magic gathering, you might say. I would like to tap out of this conversation. Yeah, well, okay. If this is going to be a short one, like you said before the show, to curse to curse our episode length, then we should wrap up pretty soon. Oh, jeez. All right. Well, anyway, um, <laughs> it's, it's, it really takes this like fantastical leap where you're getting some interesting stuff about the world building and about this kooky house and about the servant dynamics. And there's also this really kind of like arch language that I think you may have gotten tastes of in the like snippets I've read so far but the dialogue has this like kind of like again Dickensian but wacky and weird quality to it um, where like the teachers have all prodded and patted us down, emptied our pockets and poked us all aboutwards, looking one and all for the missing handle and it not being found. We've been hurried out to be in our own rooms until further notice and not to be in anyone's way whatsoever, but to holler loudly should we see Aunt Rosamud's brass headacre. And it's just like they all talk in like almost what you expect Victorian British people to say, but then a little off. Okay. Um and so you're getting all of that, and then all of a sudden people are turning into knobs, and chairs are turning into people, and Claude and Lucy don't even have a like a save. They never get like a true save the world quest. Claude wants to maybe help his bathtub plug. I mean, there are, there are two more books also. Yeah, so I want to get to that as we as we wrap up because there's a bold choice at the end of this book. Uh, that we should talk about. Lucy <laughs> just wants to... A, she wants to get her matchbox back. She has now developed an attachment to the matchbox because she has been injected with part of the matchbox and they've been feeding her dirt from the heaps, which like is part of what feeds your connection to it and also inoculates you against the object disease. I'm not really sure. Um, okay. And while the whole house is beset by these... like terrifying objects and by this big crazy storm that's uh, you know blowing all the windows in they're going down down into the basement where there's where they think the matchbox is and where they think this mustache cup that was lucy's friend is Mm -hmm. and the climactic end of the book is what it's not a battle but they happen upon a big room where a bunch of the servants are trying to tame one of these gatherings. And it's really, okay, I thought this was a cool choice. You know how Claude can hear the objects speak? 
when he's yes. in a room with like thousands of them all screaming at each other, he can't hear anything. So there's this like cool action this sequence. crowd noise, yeah. Yeah, where he is like functionally deafened by it and he has to depend on Lucy to help him navigate and keep him safe. Um, which she can totally do because she spends a good third of this book John McClaning through the ductwork of this house. <laughs> um, and right as you think there might be a like Claude and Lucy save the day, Grandpa shows up again and just ends the book. And it ends with people, some people who were objects aren't objects anymore and some people who were people are now objects and it doesn't sounds confusing it doesn't like pay off claude or lucy in a specific way at all like they don't they do not get um a lot of the firsts in trilogies give you at least a like you know luke blows up the death star or they find the the sorcerer's stone in the first book of a series or you know, sure, like there's yeah. a natural end that the hero has accomplished something. Uh-huh. And not to say that Lucy and Claude don't do things in the book and like grow, because they do grow as characters and in a relationship that's budding between them. Um, but they do not like even save the... Di- it's not even like we won the battle, but there's still the war to but come. But there's still a war to fight. It's just like, and that's and that's it. That's the end. Yeah, and the other books are going to jump to some other characters, maybe. It's a really bold choice to kind of... It doesn't really deflate the balloon. It immediately makes you go, well, I guess I need to read the next book. And it, it, he has said that he knew it was going to be a trilogy, but this is one of the first... This is one of... Not the first, but like first in a while where I've read the first in a series and been like, oh, this does it. This ending isn't even an ending. This this ending is <laughs> this is just where he had to stop writing to fill up a whole one whole book. It's and a now he, yes. It's a big cliffhanger for these characters, um, but it doesn't. I felt like it doesn't have an internal resolution. Which, if you come in knowing that, I bet it wouldn't bother you. Okay. I was a little like throw. I was more. I wasn't even disappointed. I was just disoriented. <laughs> It's like, what is happening? The book's over now? Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, that's that's something that I think if you are recommending this book or you think you might want to check it out, like you might want to evaluate your relationship to reading all three of these because one will not get it done. Sure. And I'm struggling to think of other series that I mean, are really... How, how long was it? How fast it is? Like, is reading the other two going to be pretty quick it would be pretty quick this was like 250 pages and it's even though the language is really fun and complex it is not a slow read it's not a hard read i wouldn't say sure Um, okay i would and overall i would the the body horror elements of like (laughs) being turned into chairs or knives or like you know what? If you think too hard about the Beauty and the Beast thing, it starts to get a little stressful. Like if you think at all about it? Yeah. Imagine, imagine that instead of getting to sing and dance like Lumiere, you were just one of those knives that lives in a drawer in Beauty and the Beast. Yeah. I mean, I gotta imagine that's just the difference between being like 
middle class and lower class. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. In real life, I don't know. But yeah, th- this book certainly presents that in an interesting way. And I do want to shout out the passages we spend with the grandmother. She's the one who gets this marble mantelpiece. And she's had it her entire life. And it has these like statues built into it that are like holding up the top of the mantle and they're like kind of classical Greek women statues. So very Mm -hmm. like voluptuous and meant to be beautiful forever. Nice. And she is, sorry, that was, (laughs) she is a woman who, you know, is a little kid. And when she starts, you know, she has this thing, she starts playing with it and she's like climbing all over it because she's a kid. And then she becomes like a old lady and she's never been able to leave this room because of this giant mantelpiece. And also now these statues are like taunting her with their beauty and stuff. And it's just like through that character, you get a a different rumination on our relationship to things and things that we have throughout our lives yeah. than we do with Claude, who's like, I have a bathtub plug and it's very useful. I will be useful. I'm Claude. <laughs> Uh, it's just interesting. I don't know. Is there is there an object? Is there a thing in your life, Andrew, that you feel like you've had way longer than you expect to have had it? I was. I'll give you mine right off the top of my head. I have a pair of scissors in my kitchen that I think I took from my mom's house when I moved away to college, and now I've just had it ever since. And they're not particularly good scissors. They're just because they're, they're old, there. but yeah. they're there and they work. I mean, if you use like a one of those cylindrical knife sharpener things on both blades of scissors, you can you can kind of you can kind of rejuvenate it a little bit. Has been my experience. I also have a deck of cards from a show I was in in high school. I've never played cards with it. I used it as a prop for ten seconds and then put it on a bookshelf, and it kind of has represented my fondness for that show I did. And it's it. I've I've moved with it five times that I have this deck of cards. That's, I mean, we've as we have moved and grown older and gotten more established as a, a couple and as a household, Susanna and I have replaced pretty much all the furniture from our mm. very first apartment that we got together like 12 years ago. But the one thing that we haven't replaced that has kept following us around is the crappy particle board table Mm. that we like the dining room table that we got from goodwill for twenty dollars yeah and i have a leaf for it but it is a like uh a uh what's the name for the wood where it's just like layers compressed and like stuck to each other like a composite yes yes sure Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. sort of plywood Mm -hmm. leaf that i had made at the home (laughs) depot and then drilled holes in myself it's a bad table, but because of our table preferences and needs and the, the space that you've been in space yeah, yeah. that we have for a dining room table, it's been a hard, it's been hard to, hard to replace. And so we've still got this stupid table that I hate. Mm. And so that's the object of mine. It's <laughs> a table too big. It's a table. T- I guess in Beauty and the Beast, they did have some furniture up in the mix. No, the table's not too big. It could be anything. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's it's an interesting book to. It's one of those things where, as like a kid, the the read on all of this magical object stuff could be like, "Ooh, it's kind of like when I'm playing with my you like when you were talking with Henry and his lovey, or like when you're a kid, you have action figures and you're like imbuing them with personhood and stuff. 
or whatever toy you're playing with. And then as you grow up, it's like, I've got all this crap. <laughs> like, <laughs> what crap has been following me around? What stuff have I gotten rid of that maybe I didn't need to? Mm-hmm. Um, that's really what it seems like Carrie is interested in is that kind of like how we grow and don't grow with our stuff. Um, sure. And what if that stuff had opinions about it at the end of the day? Um, mm-hmm. Or could turn into a monster Voltron style. Um, that's Heap House. Thanks for deeping me this house. Yeah. Um, didn't want to dwell on the exclusion zone style wastelands outside Heap House, but, you know, that's something you can read about if you read this book. Um, thanks, everyone, for listening. You can send us a note about your garbage to OverduePod at gmail.com. Hit us up on Twitter and Facebook at OverduePod about your favorite kid goth Victorian London stories. Uh, thanks to Matilda, Brianna, Tybus, Leanne, Annie, Kate, Sarah, Cherville, and many more for reaching out this week. Thanks to Nick Larandis, who composed our theme song. Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where should they go? You can go to OverduePodcast.com, which is our internet website. Up there we have links to the books that we have read and are going to read. We're going to post August's schedule pretty soon. Do you want me to read it right Uh, now? Sure. Go for it. Next week will be a guest episode with our new friends from the Heaving Bosoms podcast. We read Moonglow by... I don't have it in front of me. (laughs) Okay. But I enjoy that book, and it's going to be a Mm -hmm. fun one. Moonglow. Um, in the Darkest London series by yes. an author that Andrew is Googling right now. I can see him do it. Uh, I wish, uh, Kristen Callahan. Yes, Kristen Callahan. Um, okay. After that, we're going to talk about The Murder on the Orient Express by Agatha Christie. Then Little Fires Everywhere by Celeste Ng. Then The Public Burning by Robert Coover. East of Eden by a guy named John Steinbeck. And Andrew, our, Whoever he is. Our bonus episode this month Space Jam. The novelization of the 1990s movie. Yeah. Come on and slam and welcome to the jam. I can't wait. Another in our long, illustrious series of 90s movie novelizations. How do people join us for those bonus recordings, Andrew? Patreon.com slash Overdue Pod. All the info's up there. Come hang out with us. It's a good time. And you get to say stupid stuff in the chat at us that makes us laugh. That's the way to do it. Great. Enjoy the uh, episode next week, everybody. It was a blast. Yeah, it was real fun to record. All right, everybody. uh, Until we talk to you next time, try not to fight any trash golems and also try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.